You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cracking open a cold one. <laughs> yes. Would that be a scratch and dent Perrier? <laughs> <laughs> peach flavor. <laughs> Tonight's my seltzer of choice is peach. I have to keep everyone updated on whatever seltzer I'm drinking. Why? I'm sure everyone's desperate to know what seltzer is Tim drinking tonight. Tonight it is Peach Perrier, Scr- Scratch and Dent. <laughs> scratch and Dent edition. <laughs> the nearly expired Scratch and Dent edition. I, yeah, it's important to let everybody know we are not spending all of this patron money on first run Perrier. <laughs> oh no, this has to be deeply expired. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a bargain outlet grocery store. Can you call it a grocery store? It's more of a warehouse. 
more of a food warehouse. <laughs> they call it an outlet. An outlet. <laughs> That's where we get our fancy <laughs> highfalutin. Maybe we'll never get it again. <laughs> yeah, they never have the same thing twice. Before we get going, I want to thank the patrons. Thank you guys. It's awesome. You guys really make Strange Familiars happen. We can't say thank you enough. That's why we thank you every episode. So thanks for your support. Thanks for making Strange Familiars happen. And we'll keep bringing you content because you guys make it happen. So tonight we're doing a disappearance. Yes, a listener requested or a listener suggested disappearance. Joe from the UK wrote us and said, Have you ever heard of the story about um, a photographer's son in the Pacific Northwest who went missing? And I was like, I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, she emailed me. Well, she emailed the Strange Familiars address, which which is me. There's not too many stories you can immediately pass off to me. <laughs> I forwarded that directly to you. I said, oh, boy. And it's Allison has done 150% of the research on this and sort of kept me abreast because I'm up to my eyes in this Bigfoot book with Josh. There's no way I can take on any other research at this time. Yeah, and I'd like to thank Joe, who I was just really pretty much following in her a lot of her footsteps. Yeah, she pointed us in, in this direction. Said, hey, you guys might want to check this out and... Take a look at this story. It might be something you want to do. And just, I think she gave me a brief summary of it. And I said, oh, yes, this is something we will be doing. (laughs) And I forwarded her email to you. And that was the beginning of this episode. So it's pretty neat. It has some in common with... With the Jenny Beam story. With Jenny Beam. Mm -hmm. It's another weird disappearance. You know, I was thinking earlier today about how this is really a story about I guess you guys talk a lot in the paranormal community about these sort of liminal spaces. Hold on. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right here. You can no longer say you guys. Oh, yeah. You are in this now, whether you like it or not. You're part of it. I've roped you in. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Liminal spaces. And I feel like this is sort of... A- uh, more like a, a psychological liminal space and being in limbo and what it does to you when there isn't any closure. Yeah, and obviously you're thinking of this as as a mother and a parent. Yeah, and I think that's a, a lot of time. You know, Joe and I sort of discussed this. She wrote to me and said she was like so affected by some of the things that happened to Jenny. And mm-hmm. um, I think... A lot of people have that reaction where they just sort of want to like scream through time and pick a kid up or tell him not to go to a certain place and try to affect history in some way. The fellow I met up in Northumberland, John Moore, who showed me where the the werewolf's grave was. Mm -hmm. Look up Grave of the Wolfman episode if you want more on that. (laughs) Nice segue. (laughs) It's subtle. It's a patron episode. (laughs) Everyone who's listening to this can hear that one also. In any case, we were having lunch after he showed us the location and so forth. And while we're talking, you know, he's asking mm-hmm. me about Bigfoot and ghosts and all this. And, and he says, and you can write about this stuff and it doesn't bother you. Meanwhile, he was the true crime beat reporter yeah. for, for the newspaper he worked for. And he told me, like, there's a very specific way you cover these these true crime cases 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you do a certain thing on, on day one, a certain thing on day seven, a certain thing on day 10, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I could cover Bigfoot every day and every night. I could go to a haunted house every night and it would never affect me as much as the true crime stuff does. I do not understand for a second how someone does a dedicated true crime podcast where they are just digging into this stuff every episode, Mm -hmm. like every week they're getting into this stuff because especially things that are more recent that to me, like, yeah, time has a little bit less immediacy to it. it So I feel like even going up to when we saw Jenny's grave, it was brutal, really. Yeah, And I still think about that, how I that's unfinished business that I need it's something that I feel like with enough time and effort, we could know. But I don't know at this point what the purpose of knowing that would be. Or if, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I know. It, it would. I mean, it would be nice to know. And I'm not saying we're not going to do true crime. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do like doing the occasional case. I like these older cases. Like you said, it, it you, there's mm-hmm. some separation there and so forth. And, and we will occasionally do some true crime stuff. But I just... It's... So yeah, much darker to me than Bigfoot and ghosts. I mean, it, plus, that, like a first-person discussion about something that happened to someone is one thing. I, I do get a little antsy when you're kind of co-opting someone's story who can no longer tell it, and mm-hmm. kind of some of the issues that surround that. I, I, I think that's why time helps. If mm-hmm. you know these older cases, I think. I yeah, think. there's no one that was alive then that's going to remember. This is a story that's actually even older than Jenny. Yeah. It's curious that it takes place in a part of the world that's pretty familiar to your people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and once again, it's not like this couldn't be a missing 411 case. Yeah, it's got a lot of those hallmarks again. I mean, I don't know if maybe it's just the fact that a lot of missing cases have the same hallmarks. It's a broad net. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've, Pilates has cast a very wide net when it comes to these cases. It's not... The factors that that are hallmarks of a missing 411 case are not quite as narrow as you might think they'd be. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd think they'd be these very specific. He's he's cast a pretty broad net. That's fine. It's a mysterious disappearance. Mm-hmm. Would, you know, it is interesting to see when you, you juxtapose the two cases, Jenny's case and this one, uh, how similar the mo of the police are at that time. So you really see like. First, you check the gypsies, you know, like, oh, there's no, there's a lot. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities, not just the way the police treat it, but the way just the way the case moved in general, I think. Mm -hmm. So let's get into it. This is about a boy. And we decided we're calling and call him Cecil. Yes. Cecil Britton. He was from the Pacific Northwest in Walla Walla, Washington. His father was a photographer, which is handy if you're going to be go missing that somebody would have really accurate pictures of you to disseminate so a lot of people might not have a lot of pictures of their kids yeah in 1906 which is when goes missing as a four-year-old so it's 1906 bigfoot country i mean yeah they're on vacation they're from walla walla washington and they go on vacation to an area called tollgate which is on the border between oregon and washington okay and that's these, what they're calling the Seven Devils area. Yeah. In the mountains, which it seems like it's a fairly sort of um, really wild area in that, like, after he goes missing, they find, like, all, all kind of groups of people who they perceive as being sort of unsavory are well, living in this area. It. 
So what, what day did he go missing? He goes missing on Sunday, July 15th, 1906. And what was he doing? Berry picking? That was one of the... I, the thing is, throughout the different newspaper accounts... The story changes. The story changes a little bit. Blackberry picking is one of the... <laughs> I don't know what it is about... I mean, maybe just people are berry picking way more often than we think they are. <laughs> yeah. Or what... I mean, I guess, what else is there to do in the mountains on vacation in at the turn of the century? Like, it's not like you're going to go to the pool... Yeah, I don't, you know, didn't have a water slide or anything. <laughs> no. The one story, the first story that emerges is that his mother had let him go to buy some candy at the store. Keep a four-year-old. Him, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't even trust a four-year-old not to swallow the coins on the way there. I mean, <laughs> the story changes at some point I mean, in it, another and, story. And once again, like we said with Jenny, it's a different time. And people just... Gave their kids a longer leash, let's say. And also they weren't constantly barraged on a daily basis with every horrific thing that could happen to a kid. Mm -hmm. Even though the reality of daily life was that horrific things happened to children on a much more common basis at that time. Yeah. Of all sorts. Yeah. You know, not just... Natural causes. Sickness, you name it. So uh, the story of him picking berries, does that... That's he left sto- there to go buy candy. That's the story. He, or- the first story that emerges from his mother is that um, she sent him to the store to buy some candy. He bought the candy, was seen at the candy store, and then was never seen again. A story emerges later that the man who took him and his mother up to the, the camp initially had given him candy to keep him occupied, and he was lost in his company. And then a third story emerges at another time in another article that they were berry picking and she turned around and he was gone. I think a lot of this is sort of like, that's what happened. So, right. Well, that makes, to me, that makes the berry picking more suspect. I think, I think it's the least likely scenario. Well, I think you should go with the earliest report and the one the mother, the mother said. She said she sent him to get candy now. And maybe she just told a reporter she sent him to get candy and this other guy took care of that. And and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be some combination of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, my thought is maybe, maybe whoever wrote the article was just familiar with, you know, how many kids go missing berry picking. Or maybe that was a trope. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, of the time. Yeah, I that... think kind of like first ask the gypsies. Right, exactly. I'd like to do a little bit more research onto the reality of or potential reality of gypsies taking children, like where that stems from and why that continued to, to pervade the popular culture. Is it just because they're other? Well, also... I... I mean, I think in the UK they make a distinction between like the traveling people and the actual you know, and the, the, the gypsies would be the Romani and the traveling people were, you know, st- you know they still traveled but they weren't actual Romani. Did we make that distinction here? Are these actual you know Romani that were or are they just essentially you know itinerants of some sort? You know. Yeah, and I think that's what I think maybe just anybody who was homeless for lack of a better term you know mm-hmm. was considered a gypsy i don't think they really mm-hmm. took any care as to what particular nationality any of these people were it's like your your hobo versus your tramp versus your, your versus your bum yeah 
Do you know the difference? One rides the rails, right? A hobo is someone who travels around picking up odd jobs here and there. A tramp is a vagrant, someone who travels from place to place, but does not seek work. And a bum is homeless, does not travel, and does not work. Oh, so it's a matter of... So a tramp is a traveling bum, essentially. <laughs> and your, your hobo is looking for work. So there is a difference between the hobo, the tramp, mm -hmm. and the bum. Now, does everyone carry a bindle? That I do not know. It's funny how these things like, do get passed down. Because I remember as a kid, you know, like threatening to leave, never getting too much further than the yard and making a makeshift bindle. Yes. Because I thought that that was... What did you make your bindle out of? I did have handkerchiefs did that, have handkerchief? that we would like play and dress up and stuff. Mm, okay. This also had a lot to do with the boxcar children. My bindle was very big. I made it out of a pillowcase, I believe. <laughs> Because I wanted to take a lot of stuff with me. Yeah. Not a good tramp as a child. <laughs> However, you're doing an excellent job as an adult. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> anyway. Cecil Britton mm -hmm. goes missing. And then the first article I'd like to read is about how this recalls a disappearance of a young boy named Clarence Baker the year before. In the same area. Um, it's not that close, but close enough that I guess it bore mentioning... You want me to just read it? Yeah, that's fine. Everyone is interested in the disappearance of Cecil Britton. Family has sympathy of community. Mysterious disappearance of little Clarence Baker last summer recalled. The disappearance of the Britton child is the sole topic of discussion about the business houses and in the residences of Walla Walla. Almost every person in the city is taking a deep interest in the affair. And all day long, the anxious public has been eagerly seeking the latest news from the toll gate. The telephones in the statesman office have been kept busy all day by people requesting information as to whether or not the boy had been found. Expressions of sympathy for the grief-stricken parents were heard all over the city. Groups of men have stood on the street corners and in the cigar stores, advancing theories and discussing mysterious disappearance. The disappearance of the Britain child recalls the mystery surrounding the disappearance of little Clarence Baker near Seattle last summer. The Baker boy and his mother were camping on the shores of the Puget Sound near Alki Point. One afternoon, Mrs. Baker and the child started to the boat landing. Mrs. Baker was walking ahead of her son about 25 feet. When near the landing, she turned around to see if he was following when she discovered that he was missing. The entire island was searched, but no trace was found of the boy. Detectives were employed, and the father of the boy, a wealthy citizen of Seattle, spent a vast amount of money in trying to locate the boy. His efforts were of no avail, and up to the present day, no trace has been found of the missing child. So it's not right in the same area, but it's, I guess it's a similar... Enough of a regional story that... Similar case. That other story, I know you're thinking, ooh, that one's even more missing for one one. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the last in line uh, of two only. In but... that area, the Puget Sound, isn't that sort of like traditional Bigfoot territory in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty creepy, but trust me, I'm a, I'm a Bigfoot guy. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting. I think Bigfoot could be responsible maybe for some of these disappearances, but I don't necessarily like to speculate that, you know what I mean? Because it seems, I think it's really important to make sure you absolutely 100% eliminate the possibility of a human doing this, mm -hmm. you know, completely yeah. before you say, oh, it was done by Bigfoot. In my mind, it's kind of like a, a matter of know your monsters. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how quickly did they get out searching for him? 
for people. I, and this is the thing that I, I think is really incredibly heartwarming when you you think about with how little notice people just rally mm-hmm. for children, especially, and people just started right away looking for him. Was it a big town that he went missing from then? No, he's in a, like a resort area up on high in the mountains, I guess. Okay, so it's just going to get little. Yeah, it's just, it's called Tollgate. I don't think it's very large still. I think it's more of like, um, I don't know conclusively, but I think it's more of a, a vacation area, or it was at the time. It was at the time. So it's not a huge town. If he's at the candy store or drugstore or wherever he went, it's not like he was in the middle of a city or something. No, I'm thinking there must have been like a, just a general store that sort of served the purpose of the camp. Okay. Just for people to get supplies. Oh, okay. That's my suspicion of what it what was going on there. And he just goes missing from there. Yeah, because it couldn't have been too far away. Right. You, I mean, you, you're not going to send a four-year-old three miles down the road. Well. <laughs> <laughs> How far get did Jenny go? Get off the road. <laughs> yeah. But so in any case... The initial theories are that... there, Unlike with Jenny, the initial theory is that someone took him. Okay. They don't think he... They, there's not much time spent on him wa- just wandering. Or getting hit by... Or a, getting hit by well, something. Well, there wasn't a vehicle. Too yeah. many vehicles on the road at that point. Yeah, in fact, there was a wagon that took them up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of pre-automobile. Right. So... The idea is that he's been taken by someone. Someone, either some ne'er-do-wells that were living in this camp. We'll just call that the gypsy theory. Well, the gypsies are separate from that. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> the gypsies are one theory, and they, they show up later on, too. For a long time, it's suspected that someone has him. Mm-hmm. Not that he's been killed, but that someone's taken them and, and still has him. Okay. And uh, they're pretty good in rallying people who could actually be helpful. There's a man named Harry Draper who brings his dogs. And there's some interesting things that happen. We'll read the article with Harry, where Harry Draper brings his dogs. So this is from the Evening Statesman, Walla Walla, Washington, the 18th of July, 1906. So what day did he go missing? The 15th. So this is three days later. Search for Cecil Britton is still being carried on by large posse. Over 100 men in party going over every inch of ground. Sheriff Taylor of Pendleton in charge of Hunt. Harry Draper and his bloodhounds reached the scene at noon today and are now on the trail of the missing boy. Mysterious actions of two strangers arouse the campers and lynching is talked of. These people are mad. Tollgate, July 18th. The search is now being made for little Cecil Britton. It's the greatest manhunt that ever occurred in eastern Oregon. Over 100 men are now scouring the mountains, forcing their way through the heavy growth and underbrush, and following sheep and cattle trails in this section of the country in the hope of getting some clue that will lead to the recovery of the missing boy, whose disappearance has been one of great excitement for the past two days. Every inch of ground has been gone over in a systematic manner, and every effort is being put forth by the large number of searching parties. They are working night and day, and although most of the men are worn out and some nearly exhausted, they will not give up, but persistently keep up the search. Although it was reported that Indians had been sent from Athena up to 1.30 o'clock this afternoon, they had not put in an appearance. It is thought that the Indians may be working along the mountain trails towards the toll gate, and may reach here tonight. The arrival of Harry Draper and his dogs at noon today resulted in new hopes being built up that the hounds would be able to, in a short time, find some trace that would lead to the recovery of the boy alive, 
or his dead body. The sudden disappearance of the little fellow has cast a sad gloom over the entire camp. Mr. and Mrs. Britton, the parents of the missing boy, are both completely worn out through worry and anxiety. Mrs. Britton is said to be in a most pitiable condition, and it takes the combined efforts of many women campers to keep her under control. She tries to bear up under the heavy strain and still has hope that her son will be returned to her arms. The search is still on. The search for Cecil Britton was resumed again this morning. Sheriff T.D. Taylor, who left Pendleton last night at 11 o'clock, arrived here at 6.30 this morning and took charge of the posse. There are now over 100 men here from Walla Walla, Milton, and Weston. A large number of Walla Walla people arrived early this morning, and another party is expected tonight. When Harry Draper of Spokane arrived here with his bloodhounds, the posse was divided into squads and placed under the charge of one as a camp. A systematic plan of searching was outlined by Sheriff Taylor and Draper, and the work taken up. The campers are much excited over the suspicious actions of two strangers who have been lurking around the camp since yesterday afternoon. They were seen late in the afternoon by several of the campers who started after them. The men, however, managed to escape in the brush, and all efforts to locate them last night were unsuccessful. The people are so worked up over the actions of these men, they are frequent threats of lynching if they are caught and cannot give a satisfactory explanation of their movements. They are supposed to be ex-convicts, and it is the general belief that they have either taken the boy and are keeping him in hiding or have some knowledge of his whereabouts and are withholding the information in the hope of securing the $150 reward that has been offered for the return of the child, dead or alive. One of the men, when seen yesterday, was carrying a Winchester rifle and was roughly dressed. Owing to the large number of men in the searching party, the question of feeding them has been quite a problem. The campers have been very generous, but the supply yesterday afternoon was becoming quite low. A wagon loaded down with provisions reached here this morning, and the food was turned over to a man who was appointed as commissary. The supplies were sent from Walla Walla by H.C. Bryson, who has a large band of sheep in the mountains about four miles from the toll gate. You, you know they didn't know if they were convicts or not. They just weren't people they knew. <laughs> yeah, in the same way that a lot of these wild man articles are like, well, it's it's a guy who escaped from prison. Mm-hmm. They don't know that. They're just mm-hmm. like, they don't like the looks of him for whatever mm-hmm. reason. And they've I'm sure everyone was curious about what was going on. Now, these two people really could have had something to do with it. They could have. I'm not saying they weren't. And I'm the just fact saying, that and they could have been convicts. I'm just yeah. saying they didn't know. Yeah, they don't conclusively know that yeah. these guys are convicts that are just hiding out up here. So often it's just, it's this concept of like, well, it must be the other. It can't be someone we know. But it's following a pattern, a very similar pattern to Jenny Beans. You got hundreds of men searching. You got the bloodhounds out. The trail goes cold, even with the bloodhounds. Yeah. There's even some talk that um, the people who potentially have him might have been trying to trick them. Trying to trick who? Trick the bloodhounds. Oh, oh, yes. I think because they're just so frustrated that the bloodhounds haven't... They caught a scent and then it really didn't lead anywhere conclusively. And someone was talking about this in regards to these missing cases, and they said, it's not that unusual so it's often made a big deal that the bloodhounds won't couldn't track whoever Mm -hmm. it's not that unusual that this happens like sometimes they just for whatever reason can't get the scent Mm -hmm. so it's not always a a paranormal thing it's not always and like we said with jenny i mean the quickest way to fool a bloodhound would be to pick someone up and put him in a car or put him in a wagon or yeah. whatever the case and or even carry him away mm-hmm. you know 
So while this is all very strange, it does seem to be following this pattern that we're, we're at this point kind of familiar with, with Jenny Beam, with Florence Hughes, mm-hmm. with all these other cases we've talked about. So how is this one different? So uh, they leave the mountain without their son and go back home to Walla Walla, Washington. At some point, they just can't find him. Yeah. Now they've they've accused these two men. Essentially, they've accused the gypsies. Yeah, this is a this is a story that where the details and the layers seem to just kind of reveal themselves a little bit more over time. Over time, whereas Jenny Beam, we get this concentrated story that really takes place over a week or so. Mm-hmm. Basically, like the whole Jenny Beam story, everything in that was yeah, really less than a week. About a, whereas a week. this entire story takes 25 years to sort of find a find all uh, the different yeah a different sort of paths that goes down so the first thing that happens is two months after uh he goes missing and there's been a lot of newspaper articles about him already right people are familiar with the story which i think is what opens it up for all the people who might seek to benefit from that there's a reward. Mm-hmm. And then there's also people who just like to be sort of what you call casualty vampires. <laughs> you know? right, right. There's a clairvoyant who makes herself avail- available. For a fee? or, uh, or she... It's not mentioned, but she's very much in the process. The first person notices um, a kid named Cecil. And the kid's actually arrested. And someone thinks, oh, maybe this is him. But the father comes to pick him up after he's arrested. And I don't know why they'd be arresting a little boy. Maybe he was, I, I don't know. <laughs> it really was another time. Spat on the sidewalk. Yeah, I don't know. And this child's taken back to Utah. Now, I think they circle back later on and think to, that to maybe this to again. this child. Then in March of 1908, an informant named J.R. Kippert says he saw Cecil. And he's going to claim the reward. So this is the first of many times where his poor mother has to go. So this is two years later? Yeah, and identify what might be a potential Cecil. This happens so many times over the course of this investigation. It's just so incredibly painful. Yeah. Over and over again, people sort of push children they think they see who might be him people who I think want to claim a reward and they're willing to even offer up their own children, you know, kind of as... Yeah, to to get the reward money. To get the reward money. It's just so tragic. So in March of 1908, she goes to see this boy, Jesse Hart, who's the son of a variety actress, which this is very similar to The Legend of Bobby Dunbar. Okay. Which is a story, my favorite story from This American Life, where there's a boy that goes missing the son of a woman of ill repute, mm. you know, someone who doesn't have a very good reputation is brought in as the, as the potential real son. And there's some discrepancy as to who the, the real boy is. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So they're they're pretty convinced that this little boy is in actuality Cecil, and then the mother goes to see him and knows right away it isn't. But he's in such a, a bad way that they think they might just take him home anyway, which I guess is the way things worked back then. <laughs> That's not the first time we heard of that. Yeah. Now, there's other stories where, where children go missing and parents find a kid who kind of looks like their child and just, well, I'll take him. Mm-hmm it's heart-wrenching it's you know if well she says at this time that she couldn't possibly bear to take him anyway because the constant reminder of a boy that would just she says it would drive me insane Mm -hmm. i don't know if you can guess there's a little foreshadowing here (laughs) (laughs) later in that year having had time to read the newspapers in jail a prisoner named breen says that if they would just let him go He can show them right where they took him and are keeping him. He knows the other bad guys. He claims the child is alive. He claims the child is alive and he's going to go with them. And show show them where where this child is. Yeah, in exchange for his freedom. Okay. For some reason, they buy this. (laughs) (laughs) I guess their desperation, even on the part of the law enforcement, believe him enough to give it a go. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he makes a lot of excuses while they're out there in the woods, says the guy just happened to just run away, and then eventually admits that it was all a hoax. He just made a story up to mm. have a little vacation from prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, when they put the pictures of him in the paper, Cecil, like the one picture I found particularly kind of offensive is there's a picture of him and his mom, and... There's a sort of decorative border around it, including a money bag with a thousand dollars written on it. Wow! <laughs> it's like we have a, the press photo of he and his mom that they gave to the newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. And that shows that is that the last known photo of him. I don't know if it is because his dad's a photographer, okay. but that is just the one that is used most often. The, okay, so we will print that. In the show notes. And then there are other photos of him in the newspaper. And I have to say that he looks quite different from one photo to another. Mm-hmm. Depending on who they've picked to be the matching person with him, they kind of cherry pick which photo they use. Oh, that's interesting. So if it looks more like he looked in this uh-huh. photo. He looks like a sort of a, a fair kind of light haired boy in the picture I have. But there's another picture where he looks... Like he has dark hair and very sort of, they've um, added a little bit of detail to his lips. He has very sort of cherubic little Mm -hmm. lips and everything. But I don't know that I would know that it was the same kid. I mean, kids change so much at that age. It's really difficult. Right. And that photo reproduction in the papers back then. Oh, it's horrible. (laughs) So after, and now we're only two years into this, and we've already had several cases of uh, disappointment for the 
His several times mother, it popped yeah. up and this person has said, I, I know where he is or mm-hmm. this could be him and it's it's not turned out to be him. There's another child that uh, that they're saying lives in a lumber ca- camp near Eugene, Oregon. A lumber camp. Yeah, a lumber camp. <laughs> um, did he wear plaid? I'm sure he did. And this is a boy named Cecil Burns. She goes to see him. This is, again, not her son. Another disappointment. Now, I also saw an advertisement because his father was a photographer. A year after he goes missing, it says there's an article in the paper about his father retiring. He wasn't old enough to retire. Mm. I don't think he could any longer hold down a job. And it was becoming a full-time job for them to sort of run after any of these leads. Right. They said they traveled something like, it would mean something astronomical in the search. Just driving to these different places. Yeah. Or probably taking By wagon, you know, a wagon or a train. driving a horse to these different places. Mm-hmm. Later on in that year, um, one of the most interesting stories happens in that someone thinks that perhaps Cecil's being kept by this McGuire family. They have nine children, and the reason they've come to the attention of anyone is because they've people in the area have noticed how horribly they've been treating their children. Oh, lovely. Yeah including this little boy named Orville, who they keep in an outhouse. I mean, the circumstances of his treatment are so horrible that someone actually knifes his father after they read the description in the paper. Wow. Now, I did actually find the census for this family in 1910. By this point, Orville is not with them because he is adopted by the Britons. They go to see him, and she immediately knows that this is not her son. She, she, there's no question. There's that no this question. Is not her son. But he has been so horribly mistreated. They were thinking that they'd have to amputate his feet because he was outside without any kind of clothing in the winter time. Jeez. They'd pulled out part of his hair. He was just, yeah, I can't. He was abused. Yeah, he's he just, just abused. abused. And yeah. um, I think that the need was so great. Mm-hmm. She talks about how she thinks that maybe um, he would make a good playmate for her son. And so they take him home. So the Britons take this boy home. They take him home. And in the 1910 census, I can see that he is living with them. And his name is Orville Britton. And in the 1910 census, his siblings are uh, living with their family. And there are eight of them. And the census says them that they're, that the mothers had nine children and that nine of them are living. People said they thought that perhaps because he was so ill-treated that he must have been someone else's. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. I think he was their child. Yeah, I think they had I mean, too many children. And In any case, he wasn't mm-hmm. Cecil Britton. He wasn't. But they. But, but the, the Britons just took this kid. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I did read on this was that this family... The McGuire's escaped a kind of prosecution. They were going to be, they were up for charges in mm-hmm. regards to the treatment of this boy. And basically them giving the, the boy up to the Britons. Along with a little vigilante justice. <laughs> <laughs> made for them. Uh, they dropped the charges. The state dropped the charges, mm-hmm. I guess, against them. I actually followed this little rabbit hole of doom today about, I was trying to figure out what happened to some of his other siblings. The McGuire's. Yeah. Oh, boy. I saw one of his brothers had a child who 
died of malnutrition at two years old. He was, he had Down syndrome and, and died in a hospital from malnutrition. I mean, it's just, we can almost see where it's, I mean, in some ways, maybe, I don't want to say there's something good came out of that. No, but I know what you mean. But I, this, but I feel like as horrible a thing that happened. To this Cecil, boy's horrible life was was literally saved. Mm-hmm. It's and that's what's so similar to that story in the legend of Bobby Dunbar. Hmm. So this is interesting. And that was nineteen. This is in around nineteen ten. So, okay. So then, not a lot happens. So this this is still. 1910 is, what, four years yeah. after the initial disappearance. Mm-hmm. It's still making the news. Mm-hmm. People are still talking about it. They even make a remark that it, this is an unusual case because it's extended beyond the the normally allotted nine days of newspaper time that they give a missing child case, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. But it is Probably true. Probably accurate. It is true. And now in like, our current look at, cycle... If you look at Jenny and you look at Florence Hughes, I mean, they were both within that tight time period. And even, like, what happened as far as, like, the inquiry in Jenny's case, like, the local inquiry, they got together and just decided, well, we'll never know. Yeah, it's like, it's done. Let's <laughs> it's get done. it over with. Let's, here's um, a rug. Let's it all sweep happened this really, really quickly, and then it's just never mentioned again. So this case is unusual in terms of that, because it keeps kind of coming up. Yeah, and you see in this article from 1912, which I think would be important to read, it recounts a slightly more truer take on what probably happened and how the the family has been able to sustain this and give some insight into what might have happened to Cecil. All right, this is from the Oregon Daily Journal, 15th of February, 1912. Britain mystery is yet unsolved. Story from Elgin that the lad had been returned to parents denied. Walla Walla, Washington, February 15th. R.E. Britton, father of Cecil Britton, the lad who has mysteriously disappeared from Tollgate five years ago, denies that the story from Elgin, Oregon, that the lad has been returned to his parents. Mr. Britton, who is a photographer here, says that nothing has been heard of the boy since he was seen at the store at Tollgate, where he was treated to candy by T.O. Webster of this city. Cecil Britton was a bright lad, nearly five years of age, well known on East Main Street, where his father operated a photograph studio. The boy spent considerable time about the studio and was unusually attractive. One day in early summer, five years ago, Mrs. Britton took the boy to Tollgate, 25 miles from Walla Walla, in the Blue Mountains, to spend a month camping. T.O. Webster, a real estate dealer who has friends at Tollgate and was a close friend of R.E.L. Britton, took Mrs. Britton and the child to the camping place. Webster bought the boy a bag of candy to amuse him while Webster was caring for the team after the long drive up the mountain. The lad disappeared as if by evaporation, and no trace of him has been found. Britain was popular in lodge circles in Walla Walla, and when word of the disappearance reached the city, parties of searchers were quickly organized and scores of men were at the scene the next day. In the meantime, the campers had searched everywhere, and Sheriff Taylor at Pendleton had been notified. With a force of deputies, he was early on the ground. In the effort to find the lad, Harry Draper's bloodhounds were brought out from Spoken, and for three days... They failed to get a trace of the boy. For weeks, the search was kept up. Rumors of the boy being located at Spokane, Goldendale, in Missouri, in several places in Oregon, and in the Northwest being thoroughly investigated. Mr. Britton traveled nearly 20,000 miles in this search. 
The theory of kidnapping for a ransom was early injected in the case. John Smith, an implement dealer of Walla Walla, had a boy very much like Cecil Britton. Mrs. Smith and her child were at Tollgate camping when Mrs. Britton and Cecil arrived. It was thought that the kidnappers had mistaken the child, having not been advised of the arrival of the new lad. It was thought that Mr. Smith would have paid liberally for the return of his boy, had he been stolen. The story of Pat Crow and his kidnapping of the Cudaby child was fresh in the minds of the people here. Soon after the excitement died out, a man by the name of Breen was sent to the penitentiary from Spokane. He told stories about the kidnapping and offered to locate the boy if given his liberty. Arrangements were made for Breen's pardon in case the boy should be recovered. Warden Reed took Breen in an automobile to the scene of the mystery, and after two days fussing around, Breen admitted that he was faking the whole story in the hope that he could get away. Fortune tellers and clairvoyants advanced all kinds of theories. Britton was a man of small means, but he spent every cent he could raise in the search. The lodges aided with men and with money. Effort after effort was made to get trace of the boy, and it was known that thousands of dollars were being spent. Then it leaked out that John Smith had become so well satisfied that the attempt had been made to kidnap his boy that he had silently become the angel and was financing the expense of the search month after month. People familiar with this case are agreed that when it was fully known that a mistaken identity had occurred, the kidnappers killed little Cecil Britton and buried his body on the bleak crest of the Blue Mountains to avoid possible detection. This seems like the most likely so far, except that, but I mean, how thoroughly did they question this T.O. Webster guy? He's the last person seen with the child. He's the last person that's seen with this boy, yeah. He gave him candy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought that too. Yeah. Why was he driving the family up there alone? Exactly. Like, like wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't there be a certain amount of propriety that would not have a, a married woman and a man going alone together up into the mountain to a camp? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying, like, exactly. Was yeah. that a common in the day? Also, I'm not saying that certain people aren't altruistic purely for the sake of being altruistic. But I also feel like sometimes there's a guilty conscience involved. And was this person paying in aid to look because he knew a little bit more about what was going on? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And we can't be sure. But the kidnapping theory is, is very interesting. That they just took the wrong kid. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then when they found out that they were never going to get any money for him, that, that they yeah. killed him. And and that would be a good ending point for the story, except for that Cecil shows up in 1922. Do the music. <laughs> well, this is the... So that's t- 10 years from this. So so this is 1912, where this kidnapping theory kind of comes yeah, to the Yeah, and then there's kind of like a... There's, there's not a lot happening with the case. And you would think that this is just... It's just forgotten, right? Like You'd think it was forgotten, except for there was a man named Stark, who was sort of an amateur true crime aficionado of, of the time. The, of the day. And he was so obsessed by the case that he decided to take detective classes and study every picture of Cecil so that if he ever saw him at any age, he would be able to readily identify him. I mean, by all accounts, he was, you know, like he's the same... As, as any of us who were like, I'll figure this out. <laughs> he took detective classes and never became a detective. Right? No, he didn't. He, that wasn't his aim. His aim was to find Cecil and reunite him with his mother. That's what he said. Wow. And so 
as luck would have it, he was working at a hotel in Spokane and Cecil is working with him. But really? Well, it was a guy named Cecil Lenningen. And he does bear more than a passing resemblance to Cecil Brunton. Like if you see the picture of uh, this kid at this age and you see the picture of Cecil at four, he's pretty passable. And he shows up and the mother is convinced. Now keep in mind at this point, let's see, don't make me do the math, but 17 years have gone by. She's absolutely convinced as soon as she sees him that this is her son. He moves in. He can't remember anything about his parents. He just remembers being taken from wagon to wagon and that a family whose name he adopts, named Lenigan, had sent him to school for a few years. This is the story he tells. There's article after article about how it's finally, finally solved. They're back together. And the article kind of falls out of the paper again. And you think, this is wonderful. They're finally reunited. Except for in the year before her husband passes away. Cecil's dad dies of a broken heart, they say. He's pretty young, actually, when he passes away. The year before they find this new Cecil. He's welcomed into the home. He's living there. And by all accounts, things are finally settled. It's a really tidy final closure. Mother regains kidnapped boy after 16 years. This is from the Oakland Tribune, August 10th, 1922. Spokane, Washington, August 10th. Cecil Britton, kidnapped July 15th, 1906, from near Walla Walla, last night rested in his own home after Mrs. R.L. Britton of Soap Lake had identified him as her son. Though Mrs. Britton's identification of the boy, who is now 21 years old, was instantaneous, a careful check of physical characteristics with a younger brother, Robert Britton, aged 18, was made. Nothing was found to dispute his right to the name of Cecil Britton. As Cecil Lennigan, the boy has lived in various cities of the Pacific Coast ever since he can remember. He went to school in Portland, where a couple with whom he lived gave him their name, Lennigan. He has no recollection of the kidnapping or of life with his own parents. The boy's resemblance to descriptions of Cecil Britton was noted by G.W. Stark, with whom the boy worked at a local hotel. Stark is a graduate of Detective Correspondence School. <laughs> Which, so he actually technically has a lot more credentials than we do. <laughs> <laughs> so the mom is satisfied. This She's is, satisfied. This is her son. However, by 1923, this Cecil is living in Montana, and by 1924, he's arrested for rape. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't mean he wasn't the boy. Well, <laughs> it doesn't mean it is. Right, exactly. And he seems to be somewhat of a shady character by evidence of the fact that he was arrested for rape. Mm -hmm. And also on his entrance forms what have you it's i guess the when they kind of take stock of you when you're arrested okay it says his parents are dead at this point he says his parents are dead at this point he says his parents are dead mm. and that he's been living since 1923 in i guess butte montana and working as a vacuum cleaner salesman now, the circumstances of the charge of rape are awkward, too. I mean, I don't really want to unpack all of that, but he and several other boys are arrested for this rape. And then the accusers are also sent to, like, a reform school. 
yeah, that's a whole nother issue I don't yes. really want to unpack. I'm just to say that um, really messy. It's not quite as tidy an ending as we might have presumed. There are pictures of him upon entering prison, his mugshot, which look very similar to Cecil and the reunion pictures. And then there are pictures when he's paroled in 1927. I can't find any... I don't know if he changes his name again. I can't find any um, record of him after he's released in 1927. When when he's arrested, is he he arrested as Cecil Britton? Yeah. Is that the name he Mm -hmm. uses? That's the name he uses. And then in 1933, there's another potential but sad, small break in the case. And sadly to me, I think this is probably the solution. I think that article from 1912 and these articles make the most sense. By this point, I can't. I can no longer search the Walla Walla newspaper. So there might have been things that were happening in the interim, but they just those records aren't online yet. Yes, yeah, some newspaper archives are not hundred percent complete. So sometimes, like, like I know if you want to look for articles about Nelson Raymire and the Hex murder around here, you have to look for newspapers outside of York County because they're not online yet. Exactly. Or you have to go into the historical society and, and look for them there. So this is from the Los Angeles Times, November 7th, 1933. Skeleton may solve long-time mystery. Walla Walla, November 6th. The mystery of the disappearance 27 years ago a four-year-old Cecil Britton was believed solved with the discovery of a skeleton near Milton. A prolonged search with 200 men on the hunt at one time was made for the boy who disappeared from Tollgate in the Blue Mountains July 15, 1906. The skeleton was found 14 miles from Tollgate. Before DNA testing, mm-hmm. you know, we can't know for sure, but you have to wonder if that's not... It's the sadder solution. It's the sadder end of the story, but... Yeah, and, and there are so many Cecils in the story... And so many people who become other people. Yeah. There's a curious thing in that Orville, the little boy that they adopt who was so badly mistreated, by the 1920 census, he's not in there as Orville Britton. He's listed, or someone his age is listed as Roy Britton. Now, the curious thing about that is the year before Cecil was born, they lost a baby who was five days old. The Britons did. His name was Roy. His name was Roy. And now Roy's back as Orville and Cecil. And then the other Cecil shows up yeah, to replace the father who's passed. I mean, it just seems like trying to fill loss with anything. It really does, yeah. So incredibly sad. But then it, even though her husband dies, she goes on to remarry. She lives in succeeding censuses. I found that she was living with her son and it says... Um, daughter and there's two more sons and it just doesn't make sense because she's too old she's in her late 50s to have like an an eight-year-old it doesn't make sense and I figured it out she's taking care of her her son got divorced she's taking care of his kids but they're listed as her sons and daughters with the new husband so there's like all these times where she's just nurturing and caring for all these children who weren't biologically hers who weren't biologically hers Filling that gap. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's a some good mm-hmm. that, that came out of it. What a weird story. Yeah. 
I to me I think that idea of um just the hell that is limbo. Yeah. I'm not saying that's worse than death. I mean, I don't presume to know one way or another like right. whether having some hope is better, but that place just being in that place for your whole life we have no way of knowing i don't have access to those records to know what her reaction was to finding that skeleton exactly yeah that's my and question I don't, like and the, i don't know the circumstances of the other cecil moving from spokane where they were living to butte montana right right was he ejected from the family or mm-hmm. did it i mean let's just think of the sort of like the occam's razor like what are the odds that the guy who's been searching through his private detective correspondence school, that the kid he's looking for shows up as a co-worker in the hotel where he's working. Right, yeah, it's, it seems outrageously It's a wonderful impossible. leap of yeah. fancy. Yeah. And her husband had just died. Mm-hmm. You wonder if it's just not... I mean, she maybe... She was emotionally ready for... Yeah, for and this. at that point, how could you even know what a four-year-old would look like? As, well, exactly, yeah. yeah it's, Anybody could fill that gap if they and wanted it to. Long before DNA testing. Yeah, that's the interesting thing I think now is that these secrets are harder to keep. Oh yeah. So once again, thank you, patrons. That's the story of Cecil Britton and all of his various manifestations. Mm. All the Cecil Britons, I suppose. Yeah the many Cecil Britons. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Yeah, and if you have any suggestions for, yeah, for we're always stories open. where I'll chase anything. like <laughs> <laughs> Always open for shows. Like heaven
slightest sound stern I fear wet blood marks the winding way from lonely wood unto the bygone When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.